Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 51, The Blind Man's Bluff. I'm Jonathan Mangus, coming to you from San Diego, California, and joining the show today is David Lindblad from Apache Junction, Arizona, Martin Fido from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, Chris George from Baltimore, Maryland, Mike Covell from Kingston-upon-Hole in the UK, Robert McLaughlin from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and Allie Ryder from Orlando, Florida. David Lindblad is a native Arizonan who has been hosting the Fistful of Podcasts podcast for three years now and has been an aspiring writer for many more. He is the author of the book Found Manuscript that is available on Amazon as a Kindle ebook, and his podcast is available on the iTunes Music Store. Some of his many interests lie in Victorian and Edwardian history and the works of H.P. Lovecraft, Ambrose Bierce, Dante, and Poe and he has been interested in the Whitechapel murders for just over a decade. Chris George is the editor of Ripperologist magazine, as well as an accomplished historian and composer, and this is his first time as a guest on the podcast, and I thank them both for being new guests on the show. I did put out a request for uh, listener questions to kind of get us started off. And so the first question I'm going to present to you guys, and it'll have to, one of you will have to basically, Robert McLaughlin is the best at doing this, and I'm catching him off guard, but it concerns the Aberconway version of the McNaughton Memoranda. And if um, one of you are uh, ready enough about that to just kind of, for our listeners, um, give us a brief uh, explanation of what that exactly is, how it fits in to the other versions of the McNaughton Memoranda, and kind of like maybe a history of it, and why it's so significant um, to have it published in full here in the latest issue of Ripperologist. I could do that for you. Um, yeah, the- Martin could do that. Uh, Melvin McNaughton, let's say, he became chief constable in the Metropolitan Police just after the Ripper case ended. So he investigated the Pynchon Street murder, but none of the actual Ripper murders. He became head of the CID after the retirement of Dr. Robert Anderson, who had been uh, head at the time of the Ripper murders, and that was some 10 or 12 years later. But as chief constable, about six years after the murders, He wrote a report on them, apparently for the use of the Home Secretary, because a paper, the newspaper called The Sun, was beginning to claim that a man called Cutbush, who'd been arrested for stabbing women in the bottom, could have been Jack the Ripper. And his paper was written, his memoranda were written, to explain why Cutbush was not likely to have been the Ripper. At the heart of it, he says... There were three people, he could name three people who were much more likely than Cutbush to be the Ripper. And he named Montague John Druitt, uh, Dr. Ostrog, and the Polish Jew Kosminski. We know of two copies of this, quite certainly. One deposited in the files at Scotland Yard. That has been available to the public for a very long time. It was pa- printed in full by Don Rumbelow. So that's been around for 20 and uh, over 20 years. The copy, however, which first made the public known that they existed was one owned by his daughter, Lady Abba Conway. And she showed it to Dan Farson when Dan was a television presenter and that led him to research Jack the Ripper, produce his book and go with the McNaughton theory that it was Druid. But 
Lady Abba Conway wouldn't let him reproduce anybody's names, and he didn't produce the entirety of the document. It's very, very similar to the one deposited in Scotland Yard. There are, in fact, most people would say, having looked at it, no really significant variants. As it happens, nobody had ever printed the whole Abba Conway document. The crucial part, naming the three suspects, had been reprinted, but the whole of the rest of it, the talk about Cutbush, had never been reprinted in full. This became a big issue when Trevor Marriott suddenly put up the suggestion that maybe something was being covered up. Uh, in particular, Keith Skinner, who had uh, obtained the full document, uh, got copies of it, uh, got a photocopy of it, and uh, had actually shown it to Paul Begg and me, uh, had permission from its present owner to publish it. Uh, Marriott asked the owner also for the permission, but then put out statements on the internet which appeared to suggest that he was claiming Keith Skinner had stolen material. Uh, that produced a huge hiatus, and there was a long delay before it was finally published uh, in Ripperologist recently. I think it's apparent to anybody who looks very closely at it that there really is nothing importantly new in the Abba Conway version, named because it's the copy taken by Lady Abba Conway from her father's notes, though not identical. And rather interestingly, there is the suggestion that there may have been a third version in the hands of uh, her son, Gerald Melville Don, uh, Donner. Yeah. On a Donna at one point, uh, which is now lost. That would have significant differences if it was correctly described by the man who says he saw it, but he was writing from memory. And that's really basically where the position is. I'm open to correction if anybody wishes to correct me. Um, just let me uh, see if I understand correctly. The um, full version was in intended to be published in Ripperologist, or at least somewhere, uh, months ago. But, yes, but but it was put on hold due to the allegations that Trevor Marriott was raising on on various internet message boards. Is that right? Yes, that is absolutely correct. Okay, so its appearance in Ripperologist magazine, just in just this past issue, um, was something that was intended to occur um, all along, and it yes. was not published. Just at as a response to Trevor Marriott's Quite the reverse, uh, suggestion that it was being held back for yes, some particular no. reason. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. It was held up because of that. Um, I constantly was saying to Paul and Keith, you know, I would get this stuff out if, if I'd known about this and had had a copy. It wasn't until then that I found I hadn't got a copy on my own files. So I had seen it uh, because I'd seen a photocopy of it because I knew that one thing which is interesting in it is that the name Kosminski comes at a corner which is damaged, torn away, so you can't quite read it. That explains why Dan Farson, in his book, said that the Polish Jew was called Kaminski, Kominski, or Kosminski. I wrote right. to him 30 years ago and said why, and he couldn't remember why it was that he had those alterations. Once I saw the photocopy, I knew. Did that lead you to research Kam Kaminski? Initially, yes. Uh, well, actually, Kaminsky... Uh, now, I was researching Kaminsky before I heard that from Farson. 
Yes, one reason for going on with Kaminsky was because that name occurred in Farson. The other reason was that in my initial search of the workhouse infirmary records, when I hadn't got permission to access the asylum records, I found no Kosminsky going in in the appropriate period, but I did find a Nathan Kaminsky who went in and was treated for syphilis uh, sometime before the Ripper murders. His address was fascinatingly central, absolutely central to the Five Ripper murders, more central than anyone else's. And uh, by occupation, he would have worn a leather apron. All this made him look extremely interesting. Richard Whittington Egan got very excited. Unfortunately, we can say nothing more about him except that he is exactly the same age as both Aaron Kosminski and David Cohen, the two other Whitechapel uh, Central European Jews who went into asylums uh, around the time. We do not know what became of Nathan Kaminsky, and I simply really have to leave him out of all consideration now as somebody about whom we can say too little. And um, now that the Albert Conway version has been published in Ripperologist, and I'm gonna dr I'll address this to Chris George, um, it kind of served, given the, the uh, you know, irony of fate kind of i would say it kind of is serving a dual purpose now by publishing it wouldn't you think that not only is it important to have it published in full since it's been what over 50 years since it first emerged and it has never been published in full before so that in itself is important but yeah. also it serves to maybe silence the critics who have been creating somewhat of a ruckus over the last few months so it's almost opportune in a way. It makes it more, unfortunately, maybe, it makes it a little bit more interesting to see it, its publication now as opposed to if it was published in like whatever safer environment may have been around months ago. Do you, would you agree? Yeah. Well, I, I think it's important to have it on record. It's important to clear the air and show that this is an actual document uh, from the time. Now, there is a a mystery that part of it is handwritten and part of it is typed. I think that's one of the things that we know more about, and maybe Mark talk about that. Okay, Martin, uh, Chris had said that there was a suggestion that some some of it was handwritten and some of it was typed. Oh, this is a fact. There's no question about it. Most of it is typed, and then the central and important section is handwritten in Lady Apaconway's handwriting. Right. Lady Apaconway was clearly very concerned that nobody should be defamed by having their names published as being Ripper suspects. So she doesn't have a typed section of that vital, crucial bit, but that part has been published before. That, that, that is, it's only the types on the outside, which is talking about Cutbush and other people that had never appeared before. The, the, the central and important portion she hand wrote. Okay. Okay. Um, does anyone else want to um, have anything that they would like to chime in about the uh, publication of the Abra Conway uh, version of the McNaughton Memoranda? Not really. I was one who was pushing to have it published mostly because I wanted Trevor Marriott to just shut up. <laughs> but um, and that seems to have occurred, so, you know, all happy all around. So, But, I mean, I, I do think that it's not so much the actual document itself is that sort of myth that was sort of growing around this document that was giving it more weight, I guess, more importance than I think. Like, right. 
I couldn't understand this whole idea that it was being withheld for nefarious reasons like what it named the real true ripper and it just seemed to consume so much of what i call the conspiracy sets um time and efforts and they just kept going on and on about it that you know i was the one just like publish it so they'll shut up and i do find it interesting that you know since it was published there hasn't really been anything much said about it which i found interesting but um it's been published and and the silence has been deafening so um well i i think it's very easy to make these sort of charges and to uh infer that there are all sorts of strange and, you know, dark deeds going on in this field. And um, we've seen this time and time again, and um, certain people are very fast to make those sort of um, accusations. I think, too, that there's a question of people knowing the need for new documentary material if we're going to develop new ideas. For example, the wonderful stuff that Rob found that confirmed absolutely what the French book uh, Jacques Laventreur had said about the photographer of the uh, police photographs being somebody who moonlighted as a musician. Right. Uh, Rob's further discovery of why the name on his uh, contact print, print papers was different from the name of the actual photographer. This was magnificent. That was new material. It's so difficult yep. to find new material, and I think people were screaming that the Abercrombie might be new material. Now, it leads uh, to me to ask this question, and and here I'm kind of being a hypocrite because I had when I was when I would do the podcast, I would I would try my best to avoid having the show be dictated by message board politics or topics. Th- you know, if there's a huge topic going on on the message board and a big argument or whatever, I, I would try my best to avoid letting the podcast be run by the various kind of spats on Casebook, for instance. Did you consider that, Chris, that it might be that, that you know, by publishing it now is 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 kind of, in a way, allowing the conflicts that go on on the message boards dictate the content of um, the magazine? No, I, I, we see ourselves as, as a separate entity to the message boards. And I'll say that one thing that Paul Begg has said many times is that he laments the fact that new information is appearing on the message boards and he'd rather see it in, in a um, publication of record which is what we see um, referologists as being. So we are disappointed when we see some people going to uh, the message boards with new documents and new information, and um, uh, we'd rather see it in our pages and then later on be discussed or posted on the message boards or on Facebook as one of the dissertations and so on. So uh, that would be the route that we would prefer. But I'm confused. Uh, I'm sorry. I, 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 I may have misunderstood. I fully admit to, you know, I'm rarely fully there. But um, as far as like allowing Casebook to dictate what's there and what's not, or the message boards in general, because Casebook is, of course, not the only message board. But, um, but you did sort of do that because you just, you said that it was going to be published and then that whole fur occurred. So it was held back. 
was there well, another like a legal reason or i mean i just I, I was confused in myself because it seemed like that was different than than the case so could you just clarify that a little bit i, I guess all i'm saying is that in this situation we had information that nobody else did but it's 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 opposite to the situation that I just talked about in which um, a researcher chooses to put everything on the message boards uh, before they publish it with us. But since um, Keith Skinner works with Paul, you know, we had an inside track on um, publishing this and we were glad to do so. Does that help? Now, the problem, Ali, really is you know, why after the promise did it stop? I didn't see the actually offensive email uh, board posting because it was taken down. I didn't know this was going on until Paul and Keith alerted me to it and said that we were all being abused. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say that I, I did not see those posts either. So. Yeah, but I gathered that uh, one of them was seen as seriously slandering Keith. I uh, did see them, and I, I believe they were seriously slandering Keith. I would have agreed that they absolutely... I agreed with them being taken down because they were outrageous, in my opinion. Well, I mean, you know, once again, you have people shooting from the hip without yeah. um, full information, and this is a, a real problem, uh, especially I, on message boards. I think the position was that Keith felt that if that went unwithdrawn, and he published... As it, and it looked, as it happened to look because of the timing, as though his publishing was in response to that, it would look as if the claim that he had stolen material was actually true. And he wanted that to be clearly withdrawn, and nothing we received seemed to be a definite withdrawal of it. In the end, I was saying to Paul and Keith, for goodness sake, put the stuff out. If we look as if we're just refusing because we don't like what was said, we're petty. But that is... I was easy for me to say that because I hadn't seen the original things that were objected to, and uh, I'm not aware that anything was said about me which would have implied that I had done anything illegal. Uh, I, I get what you're saying. I do. Um, I did see him, and I, I did see the, the the post. But I'm also I, I'm very I'm a different sort of person. I very much always consider the source and right. consider who it's being. I mean, I, I I do believe Keith Skinner was not really in trouble <laughs> by what was said considering uh, okay. the source of what of I'm, I'm trying to be diplomatic <laughs> and i'm not very good at it but well, I guess I, from his point of view the source was an ex-policeman which tends to suggest that he's somebody who should have integrity not only that Stuart evans who took up the cudgel strongly on keith and paul's behalf on this issue <laughs> interestingly given that he'd been at loggerheads with both paul and me Stuart, nonetheless you know said he didn't understand this because in private he'd found trevor a very acceptable person uh, and what the hell was he doing now and i've exchanged emails <laughs> with trevor and not found him offensive at all Obtuse yeah, but, times, have, but not offensive. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but I, I have to say that some of Trevor's ideas are very strange. Oh, I'm quite like agree. Ideas yes. about the graffito and so on being oh. either taken by a dog or being used as a menstrual rag by Catherine yeah. Eddowes. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. those are bizarre ideas. This is absolutely true, but there are people with wonderfully bizarre ideas in the Ripper field whom I like very much. <laughs> and who I don't find difficult to get on with. I met uh, Trevor at the City Hotel, and um, he seemed like an all right bloke. Mm. But then I, I read his postings on the message boards, and I see an entirely different guy 
entirely. It's a, almost like a Jekyll and Hyde situation. Yep, this, this is what seems to have puzzled Stuart very much, that it just he wasn't behaving like the Trevor that he felt he knew. Yep. Well, Isn't that always the way? The message boards, you have so many arguments, and then you meet people in real life, and it's all, oh, hey, how's it going? Let's have a drink. You know, right. I've found well, that time and time uh, again. Sometimes yes, but sometimes no. With uh, unhappily having to speak ill of the dead, when I first met Melvin Harris, I found him somebody who wanted to put down everybody he was uh, with and put himself in a superior position at once, and that's how he came over on the message boards. Well, my concern is that, and I'm sure it's a false concern because the Ripperologist magazine does try to maintain really high standards, is that the next time whether it be Trevor Marriott or anyone else, levels crazy accusations or accuses someone of withholding material that you guys might have, but just don't feel like publishing on the casebook or JTR forums or wherever, that, that the magazine will feel it's been, it's made itself to be in the awkward position of having def to defend itself when the next crazy crusade is launched by whomever that might be as opposed to just being at a higher level and above any kind of arguments that might be going on or accusations yeah, I, that be might thrown back and forth on, on a, a internet message. I, I can't imagine a situation like that. I think this was a special case, you know, um, involving accusations against Keith. And as for any delay in us publishing it, I think it was more to do with, um, you know, we have a high volume of stuff that we're publishing every time we put out copy of the magazine, and uh, it's just a matter of getting all our uh, ducks in place, you know, just like the Karnak thing, too, that we needed um, mm -hmm. uh, the review from Martin and um, the um, uh, article about Karnak from John Bennett, so we had to get all those ready, you know, and then it turns out to be this gigantic issue, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of knowing people and meeting them, if you meet Keith, if you meet Don Rumbelow, you don't like either of those two people, I would say that is one vote against you. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're both great guys. Really know. good guys. I thought another good guy was going to be with us today was Phil Hutchinson, but I see he isn't. No, Philip was invited, but he has play rehearsals, I believe, as uh, well as uh, Ripper Walks today. Right. So. So he was unable to be on. He's like me. He's a multitasker. Oh, yes. David, I know you have some questions you'd like or some topics you'd like to discuss with everybody else. So um, I want you to be able to get some comments into this thing. Yeah, as well. some metaphorical FaceTime. Uh, I've got, gosh, just coming in like from an outsider, outside of the boards, outside of the, the forums. I don't even know where to start, but I guess since we're, we're, it was mentioned closest to the end there, the Goulston Street graffiti. Right. I, I was, I was talking to several people about this before I came on the show and I, I was trotting this idea around and I'm not sure how well it'll, it'll be, uh, cheered or jeered, but my idea of the graffiti is that it, there's more of a likely chance that it was not left by the Ripper simply because I, I took it and I thought about it critically. I thought, the East End is a the slums, the lower classes and such. And I took my own experience as being uh, one of the lower classes, and 
I just thought, I, I'm an electrician, and around uh, any job site, you'll find a number of uh, graffiti with racial epithets or just, you know, blatant misspellings or making no sense whatsoever. And I think that people are trying to read a whole lot into this thing that, depending on your translation that you want to go by, is nothing more than a slight and an anti-Semitic mark from someone in the uh, the vicinity, because, you know, no one was really happy with all the, the Eastern European Jews coming in. And I, I liken it to this. If I were on a job site and there was a murder, you could find something that that murdered man owned or used by a piece of graffiti and say just as easily that would be part of the murder. And you could you could uh, name any any number of races that might be on the job site. You may may be able to place a name because you know they're unpopular bosses. And I was just thinking, what's the consensus as it sits right now among the experts? Whether it's it's sort of drifting away into the ripper letters and that it's an interesting artifact, but is it losing some of its uh, credentials, I guess, for the lack of the word? Um, I would like to sort of answer this. I, I believe I'm in a, in a position sort of unique. I'm on the podcast. I'm not a newbie like you, but mm. I am not a published anything. I'm not a researched anything. I have absolutely no credibility in the field of ripperology whatsoever. Um, I pride myself on my uselessness. And no. what I observe... <laughs> Is that the longer someone is in ripperology, the less, like everybody comes in and it's, you know, the graffiti and the letters and all of that was by the ripper because it's the mystique. They all come in with the idea, the mystique of the ripper. And I do think that the people who've been in the longest, and I'm not going to speak for, um, you know, Chris George or for Martin Fido or for anyone like that, that the longer they're in, the more they realize that all of these things that have gone into building the fogs, the foggy streets and the swirling cape, Jack the Ripper, including the letters and the graffito and all of that, they sort of realize that this was all built around the killings. And it has no legitimacy. It has no credibility. I don't know. I honestly know what Mr. what Chris George or, or or Martin Fido's opinions are. So I'm I'm hoping I'm not speaking for them. I'm not speaking for them. I'm just the average, the numbers. The longer someone is in it, I do seem to see that all those kind of trappings kind of fall away. But the letters, oh, the graffito, and then the conversation starts all over again with the newer people coming to it. Whereas the older people are kind of going, oh, God, not the graffito again. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I kind of want to just lay it to rest because I've... Now, here's what... Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a, a perfect storm of amateur ripperologist because I'm the guy who got into it because of Patricia Cornwell's book. Oh. Ooh, hit. <laughs> <laughs> and I understand. I know. It's not like that's, uh, that's not my uh, ripper Bible by any means, but... I am the guy who got that book recommended to him by a friend in high school, and then from there it took off. So, uh, you know, somewhere around the third book I read, I thought, you know, this is all circumstantial evidence, and it seems like a lot of these people are circumventing critical thinking to right. build a case against their, or for their particular suspect or scenario. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right, David, in the sense that the graffito is one of those things in the case that is essentially a non-clue. Whether it is written by the Ripper or not, people tend to use it uh, for whatever purpose they want to use it for. Um, if they have a particular suspect in mind, they'll they'll tie him to the graffiti somehow. Or, you know, if they don't think the graffiti was written by the Ripper, then 
they'll use a different tack that way as well. For me, I'm always, I've always been completely open-ended on that. Could have been written by the Ripper, might not have been written by the Ripper, because I've looked at many other murder scenes, and I found plenty of graffito at other murder scenes. You know, whether it's the Zodiac Killer, uh, the Manson Murders, um, William Herons in Chicago. Um, yeah. You know, e- even around the Pynchon Street torso uh, that was uh, discovered in uh, 1889, um, there was a piece of graffito near there that uh, referenced Israel Lipsky, who had murdered Miriam Angel in 1887, a year before the Ripper murders, you know, just one block west of where Elizabeth Stride was murdered. So, you know, people have always written graffiti, and, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be connected to a crime. Uh, sometimes it is, occasionally it is, but um, it needn't be. But yeah, uh, you're quite right. People uh, make way too much of it. I think um, much like the leather apron, you know, found hanging in the backyard in Hanbury Street. You know, yeah, is another one of those. I think there's a greater argument for the graffiti maybe being real. Uh, I mean, we know that there was one real clue left in that doorway, and that's the, the, the bloody apron. Yeah. And it is possible that the killer uh, left the apron to signal that the um, writing on the wall was uh, the true deal. Uh, but I guess I'm a little bit of a traditionalist in that um, I um, I think that there's a possibility that the graffiti is real, but I also include Stride and Kelly, which I know a number of people don't. I know mm-hmm. Stuart Evans' book written with Gainey, uh, The Lodger, as it was called, or uh, The First American Serial Killer. One of his chapters is titled Stride Out, and that he doesn't include um, Stride as, as a ripper murder. And I, also, uh, Don Rumbelow said the same thing in his um, talk at the City Hotel um, last year. So I think that there, there's a lot of controversy, but I, I think I, I kind of take the traditional view of things, except that I don't agree that um, Dear Boss is the true bill, and um, most of the letters, if not all of them, are probably hoaxes. And I'd like to say, Dave, I think you're right. I agree with just about everybody. Let's go back earlier than Ripperologists to Walter Dew, who was a detective sergeant at the... Sorry, a detective constable at the time of the murders and later rose to a very senior position. And he said there were 16 or 20 such uh, graffiti in the district. He never thought that that one had anything to do with the Ripper. I said 30 years ago, that if you read what it says, you've got a Cockney double, double negative there. The Jews are the men that will right. not be blamed for nothing means the Jews yeah. are the men that will not be blamed for anything. You're in the area where the second-hand and unskilled worker made shoe market on the street existed. It was uh, Jewish run. So somebody's bought a pair of shoes that don't fit. Gone back and say, well, they fitted you when you wore them yesterday, sir. Go away. Right. The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. I think that's all that amounts to. Doesn't rule out the possibility, as Christopher says, that uh, it could have been real. It is next to one of the only two real clues that we actually have. The piece of apron and the date when the murder stopped. If you want to stay with definite history, those are the two things that you must work from. Nothing else can be absolutely firmly said. Yeah, I just I... felt that... Oh, I'm sorry. 
Oh, no, I was just going to say very quickly, I do believe that if the Ripper was the type that was prone to leaving messages, the best opportunity he had to leave an unambiguous, clearly by him message would have been in Kelly's room. Absolutely. Exactly. Maybe the FM on the wall for Mabry. <laughs> That's really an MFI left it there. <laughs> it, it always, it, it just seemed to me that they have found graffiti from ancient Rome depicting Caesar in a less than uh, appealing light. And and the only time, and this is interesting, the graffiti was the Facebook for the masses until Facebook, because I I was thinking about this the other day. I thought, you know, I have not, it, it honestly occurred to me as I was thinking about it for the show, I thought, you know, people aren't writing as much on walls anymore. I, I think that we've transitioned from uh, scratching something out of a, a wall with a razor blade or a pencil or a pen or what have you, and we have moved on to now anyone can just read whatever we think whenever they want. Sure. Well, uh, was was the grief graffito the tweet of the day? <laughs> I think it, it might have been. It's it's you've got someone who wants to express a thought has no platform for it except for a brick wall and a piece of chalk. <laughs> Um, what do you make of, uh, Neil Bell had, uh, brought up Hulse's description of the wording versus, um, other police officials, um, or secondhand written down what someone else had told them or whatever. The double negative, you know, that Chris mentioned, which, correct me if I'm wrong, you basically think either way, it doesn't really matter. But it's so open to interpretation that, that where the not, the word not might be placed in the sentence, could indicate that it was written by a Jew as a defense no, I, I, or, or I, I, as uh, an anti-Semitic uh, yeah, statement. So it could go, really go either way. and it's So that it makes it even be. more com- complicated to take seriously. As, as Marvin noted, there's that Cockney double negative, which makes it seem a little bit more likely that uh, Cockney wrote it rather than the Jew. But I, I think both versions, the Hulse version and the other version uh, are both the same sort of nonsense. It's um, uh, hard to interpret what it means, whether the Jews are being blamed or the Jews are not being blamed. So it, it's it's uh, very hard to interpret what the inscription is supposed to mean, which, which of course, is another argument for it uh, not having been written by the killer, because why would he write something that doesn't make sense? And... Um Correct me if I'm wrong, but the graffiti itself, as far as making it into the press, was sparked by it being washed off the wall. Is that a fair statement? Like, if Anderson, I believe it was, uh, hadn't had ran down there with a bucket and a sponge, we might not even be talking about the graffiti today. Um, well, it, it was it was reported. It was reported in the inquest, though. Uh, so, yes. you know, it would have been would have come to light whether um, it had been washed off the wall or not. It became yeah. a matter of dispute between the two police forces. Andrews, who was the uh, head of the local police station, came down with a bucket and sponge Andrews, because Andrews. there had already been the threat of anti-Semitic riots when it got out that they were looking for a suspect who was Jewish, the suspect Leather Apron. Uh, they had, I believe, taken very, very quick action 
to try and stop that, uh, while they didn't actually stop looking for a Jewish suspect. But he wanted that to go because he didn't want riots, anti-Jewish riots, when the market gathered during the day. And it was Sir Charles Warren, the head of the uh, Metropolitan Police, who said, yes, wash it off immediately. This was protested against by the head of the city police, or the deputy head of the city police, Major Smith, who wanted it to be photographed and retained. And oddly enough, years later, Dr. Anderson said that this was a culpable destruction of evidence and it should have been preserved. And uh, just to further your point there, Martin, uh, as we know, Hulse also suggested that you know, the offending word Jews be rubbed out or e even the top line be rubbed out uh, before it was photographed. And um, that was dismissed by the Metropolitan Police. And just for those listening at home, just a quick thing that Eddowes, who was murdered on that night, was found in City of London territory, the only body to be found in City of London territory. Yet the message, the graffito and the apron were found in the doorway in Goulston Street where it was on Metropolitan territory ta patch. So two different police forces were operating that evening. And uh, that's always very important to keep in mind, especially on the night of the double event. And the big important piece of evidence that it gives us is that whether or not a dog picked it up and moved at 100 yards, it's <laughs> <laughs> impossible. That was, not, that was put forward by other policemen before Trevor Marriott. It was just only a possibility that they threw up. Not something to say, I hear this happened, but draw a 100-yard radius around the Goulston Street doorway, and you can say definitely the Ripper moved in that uh, area. It shows that he was moving east away from the Edo's murder, which is a problem for those who think that he was Montague John Druitt, which is not a silly idea, because they need him to go west to try and go and change in his chambers or at his home. Unless they were to come up with the argument that he had connections via Lionel Druitt with people in the East End, but I've never heard that put forward. Or you can completely dismiss it altogether and say that that was actually deposited there by Catherine Eddowes herself. Right. But, but, of course, that's a joke so, to anyone who didn't know. <laughs> say that and say that that's why the blood was on it, that she'd been using it as a menstrual towel. Exactly, and she destroyed oh, her crazy. apron. She carried 12 you pieces know. of cloth, some blood stained in her petticoat. <laughs> I mean, it's obvious to any <laughs> rational mind. She may she well have been from bloody noses. with her. <laughs> Well, of course, it had fecal batter on it, too. So of course it, it did, because he'd been cut out from the inside, and the ripper got that on his hands, which is probably what he wanted to wipe off. Now, okay, that sort of leads me to my next sort of uh, question. This was to uh, you, Mr. Fido, if, if if I may ask you, do you still think that, uh, at least academically, do you think that Aaron Kosminski is still at the top of the totem pole with the... with? You know, everyone's screaming for blood, and, and they're looking for the Jew. Well, uh, the Polish day Jew. I first discovered him, I said Aaron Kosminski was not and could not have been Jack the Ripper. The reason he got into the case is, in my belief, because he is so similar to the totally dangerous lunatic, David Cohen, who was incarcerated immediately after the last murders, explaining why the murders stopped, and who died very shortly after he'd been transferred to Coney Hatch, which is something that Swanson said, Kosminski died shortly after transfer to Coney Hatch. Kosminski did not die shortly after transfer to Coney Hatch. He lived on for another 17 years. He was still alive when Swanson wrote that he had died. David Cohen 
is the violent, dangerous, insane lunatic from Whitechapel who went to Coney Hatch at the point when the murders stopped and who died shortly after that. He was also taken there uh, under restraint, which is said in the Swanson Marginalia, which is not said of Kosminski. I said from the outset, what has happened is that for reasons which initially I couldn't explain, uh, before the Swanson Marginalia were found, I'd already concluded that Cohen was the Ripper and Kosminski had somehow got mixed up with him. When the Marginalia came out, it looked very much as though the Metropolitan Police followed uh, Kosminski, uh, so followed Cohen, or some of them did, and believed he was the Ripper. The City Police followed Kosminski, knew his name, which the Met were not sure about in Cohen's case, and uh, they assumed that they were talking about the same man. So the Met accepted the name Kosminski for somebody who was already dead, um, though Kosminski was alive. That is what I believe. All right, from the outset, I've said Kosminski was not the Ripper, and though you wouldn't believe it, so has Paul Begg. Everybody he's talked to has come away thinking that he thought Kosminski was. Okay, well, can I can I ask you this? If yep. if you've got this uh, David Cohen, yep, who who dies in the madhouse of hysterical fits, and he was obviously the man seeing food out of the gutter and all that. No, 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 no. He wasn't. Or, That's Kosminski. That was Kosminski. Kosminski is the one who's taking food from the gutter, right. who had delusions that he knew what everyone was thinking and thought he should never take a bath. Right, right. David Cohen just attacked anyone who came near him and was said to be very dangerous to himself and other people, had to be separated from other patients, kept in restraining garments uh, when he was in the asylum, and died of exhaustion of mania. See, my, my problem with Nasty, he's a very compelling suspect, yep. though I have to think that if you have someone who's dangerously insane like that, yep. you've got someone who's not going to keep quiet during the blitz attack. You've got someone who, you know, dies in a hysterical fit. How, yes. how well is he going to keep it together during these murders? Yeah. And not only that... A very sensible question. And the, the answer to that I offer is the uh, homosexual serial killer died in prison uh, from the Midwest who uh, attacked... Um, uh, Talking two... about Casey? Talking no, not Dahmer. Sorry? Jeffrey Dahmer. Dahmer was the Jeffrey Dahmer. homosexual. Now, Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, before his final arrest, was able, when challenged by the police following a previous murder, to cover up completely and easily and get away. <laughs> when he was nearly uh, arrested for having attacked... Uh, one of his victims who escaped, he was able to talk his way out of it very easily and say this was a homosexual lover's quarrel. And the police more or less said, our oh, pair of proof does let them go. And when, returned the victim to Dahmer as well. Exactly, yeah. But when Dahmer was finally caught and they found the heads in his um, refrigerator, he went wild. And he was taken away a raving maniac. We now have... Uh, sedatives, which will calm people in that condition. So after that, every time you saw Dharma, he looked spaced out, and he was. That's my argument for saying David Cohen wasn't a raving maniac until uh, stress, given the difficulties of carrying out his murders, came too much. In fact, he appears to have been arrested uh, at a raid on a brothel, and 
It could be that the arrest itself is what turned him, but in any case, uh, his mental condition, according to uh, Luigi Cancrini, the forensic psychologist, fits what he would expect of Jack the Ripper. Yeah, it always just seemed um, like there was a little bit of a hole in that theory, simply because if you've got this guy who's, uh, and, and, you know, to play devil's advocate, is escalating the violence of these crimes, yeah. you're, I, I, I just kind of find it hard to believe it's in the early morning hours and people are gathering around the corpse minutes after they are being found that no one saw some, you know, crazy, like someone certifiably insane running around oh, yes. probably covered in blood. Uh, well, yes, if he were a raving maniac prior to his arrest, this would be absolutely yeah. true. Uh, but in Jeffrey Dahmer, you have the case of someone who escalates steadily, becomes more and more violent. He doesn't actually rave until he's caught and knows he's caught. Then he becomes a raving maniac. You're absolutely right. A raving maniac won't stay on the pavement for 20 minutes. Uh, <laughs> and also, um, Jeffrey Dahmer was an alcoholic and tempered his, his self-medicating his insanity through drink. And so when he was with his family, for instance, living with his, his parents and killing people, his father, sharing the same house, didn't suspect any kind of uh, a homicidal violent behavior out of his son. Be I, but, but Dahmer was drunk all the time. And, I, was and just, I, want raise, I want to raise a query here. I think I'm right in saying that Dahmer first killed a person. He was doing a lot of road killing and a lot of articulating dead animals' bodies. But I think the first person he killed was after his parents, their marital dispute, had split up and left him with a house, a car, and a refrigerator. And he went to a uh, rock or jazz concert, uh, got a lift back, invited the guy who gave him the lift to come in for a drink, and then couldn't bear to let him go, rather like Dennis Nielsen, killed him and hit him in the crawl space. But I think that's the first time. He was living with an aunt when he was killing people in hotels, and she suspected nothing. But I don't think he killed anyone while okay. he was living with his parents. No, he did. He his first His first kill was when he was 18, and his mother... Had a, had gone. Oh, I just saw a documentary yesterday, which is the right. only reason why I remember this. Yep. If it had been two days ago, it would not be still here. But yep. he actually did kill someone in his father's house. And then uh, when he was like 18 or 19, he was very, very young. He was yep. 18, I believe. He killed somebody. Well, yeah. And then later he went to the army, got kicked out for being yep. drunk. And then he was living with his grandmother, and he actually, like, had someone's head in, like, a metal box in yeah. the house. And, and you know, his dad discovered it, was actually getting ready to smash it open. And Dahmer was able to talk him out, because he thought it was pornography in the grandma's house. It was uh, like, you can't you. have this. Yeah. And Dahmer, like, actually talked him out of, said, no, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll destroy it tomorrow. I'll show you everything. I'll get rid of it. And he was able to just take the box back from his father get rid of the human head that was in it, put pornography in it, and then showed it to his dad the next day. Tonight is kind of back to Jack the Ripper. Does, is everyone sort of on the same boat as to the escalation of the crimes? Like, this is... There, there is a man escalating the violence in that he is giving the opportunity and and more confidence with each kill? To, to no. me, that's kind of the old idea uh, that goes along with uh, McNaughton's idea that is... Uh, maniac uh, behavior is increasing 
until he lost his mind after the Kelly murder and then he topped himself. But I, I think in some ways that's a, that's an old idea and not necessarily one that conforms with uh, serial killer behavior. I agree. Yeah, and, and for me, I, I just take the simpler view that, uh, uh, you know, he was just getting better at what he was doing. He was more practiced. Yeah. Um, and so he had he, the time when he was. He had door. time. He he was he was getting bolder. He was getting quicker. Um, well, if, if I may put forward this idea, when you first let's say you first start riding a bike, you get up on that on that bike, you got the training wheels off. Every second seems to speed by you because you are constantly trying to keep everything under control so you're not falling over. Now, as as you get better at it. Now time seems to move at a more normal pace. You can do more with what you have. You can go from barely right. falling over to jumping off of a ramp. And I think that's what we have with the Ripper is that the first time he may have known what he wanted to do, but he may not have had time and he may not have had the steady nerve. But I, I don't think escalation is the desire to do more. I think this escalation might have been the desire to do the same thing, but becoming more uh, confident more able to handle his time, more uh, comfortable. And I think that, that it's not necessarily a, a progression towards mania, but more of a, a better use of his uh, resources. Well, I, I think the month's gap between the double event and the Kelly murder shows that he's laying low and um, considering his options. Maybe he tried to kill somebody during that, um, what, six-week window but um, held back. And so he, he was a reasoning man. I think he knew what he was doing, and his mania wasn't increasing, as the old view has it. Look at what the psychiatrists have found and the people that they've looked at. First of all, the clear evidence from all the FBI's work, which led to uh, criminal investigation analysis, or profiling as it was known, is that... Serial killers have developed up from other forms of milder sadism without doubt that they see an increase. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, uh, Ken Creaney takes the view that where you actually see the sort of increase that occurs in the Ripper case, now this is one of the cases where you've got a serial killer where you see an increase in violence, not just a repetition of the same sort of crime enjoyed. Where you see that, he argued that this is an internal rage which is building, which will suffer from extreme tension when it's prevented from killing, and this is something Dennis Nielsen reported, that it was more and more and more a relief of tension that he needed, and the tension got greater and greater. And right. then when you reach the point that for six weeks the swamping by police, which is making it difficult for the Ripper to get that release from attention, comes, he thought he would build the rage to an inner point that it would probably result in suicide. So until he heard of David Cohen, Ken Creaney thought Druitt was the obvious Ripper that he would expect the Ripper to have built, no longer get sufficient release from killing other people, have to kill himself. When he saw Cohen, he said, no, this man fits perfectly well. See, I'm, I'm very against profiling. I don't really believe in it. I, I believe that it's very easy to identify and categorize people once you know who they are and you know what their history is. But, you know, the idea that serial killers don't stop, well, lo and behold, we now have you know, Dennis Rader and, and proof oh, yeah. that that's not, you know, the case. And, and, and so I think it's very hard to attempt to psychoanalyze 
someone who we don't know who he is. I mean, not to say that it is, but we don't know for sure that Kelly was the last victim. It could be he hopped on a boat and went somewhere else. Uh, well, yeah, I, I do. I do agree with that, that sort of logic, and I do. Well, people as a whole conform to certain archetypes. We have people with similar character traits; otherwise, we wouldn't get along as a species. But I didn't think that the only way out of this of these murders stopping was either death, suicide, or incarceration. There's an entire like America is still burgeoning as a as a new nation. We've got plenty of places in Europe and in Asia to go. I just never thought that it was that easy. Like after Mary Kelly, either he released what he had to release or just killed himself. Because in America, anyone can make a fresh start. There's no passport. There's no social security number. You can be whoever you wanted anywhere else in the world. Well, yeah, but then you'd have to look for similar murders elsewhere, and I'm not sure that there are any. Um, but do you have to look for similar murders? Again, you know, there's so many... Uh, well, yeah, but yeah, you're right. I mean, he could just lay low like Dennis Raider. That's true. The case, yes, the cases of no, we know of where people have stopped is where they were sufficiently in command of themselves to realize that they were on the verge of being caught. <laughs> Another one, and this time they'd have the proof and get them. And that's what has led the people we now know of who stopped to stop. So if you propose that, you have to be looking for someone who is rational. And if you're looking for somebody with that sort of rationality, I don't think you see the sort of violent increase that comes. Though, as Ali says, it is possible that Mary Jane Kelly was killed by someone else, but I think it's very unlikely, because again, you're going to have to have worked up to that level of killing, and we don't have reports of anything but the Ripper murders, which seem to be working up to that level. Right, well, and, and I see a direct escalation from Meadows to Kelly. Hmm, I agree. I mean, there's oh. a disfigurement of the, the, um, the face that was continued from Meadows yep. to Kelly. Just in case I was confused, I want to make sure, because I do believe Kelly was, I wasn't saying that Kelly may not have been the Ripper. I wanted to make it clear that I was just saying that, you know, that explosive frenzy kind of satiated him, and he was able to, you know, kind of get it under control after um, that kind of thing. But I also do believe it's possible he could have completely changed his, his, mo his, uh, uh, his method of killing um for example you know some there's there's things of murderers who um they usually strangled and then they go and they bludgeon people to death kinds of things so i do believe that this idea that a serial killer kind of picks his method uh, knife and then he sticks to the knife he just escalates with the knife i don't think that th i mean maybe w rather than looking for murders that exactly emulate the ripper murder maybe we i mean not saying that it's possible but that you could look at maybe there was bludgeoning murders after that you know i i don't necessarily believe they get their groove and then that's it and that's how they proceed from there on out and an example of that recently here in los angeles or where martin i'm in san diego but is the grim sleeper who is a serial killer in los angeles who they've at first believed was active only in the, the 80s, maybe early 90s, and then never was heard from again. So there was the automatic assumption that he was probably in prison or he was killed. 
but then they apprehended him and were it not for a cache of photographs that he kept of his victims, they would have still believed that he kept silent and that he was able to stop. But, but because he kept these trophies, they're, they were now the, the term, the grim sleeper doesn't apply to him anymore because he never stopped. Uh, he changed his MO. Some of the victims he dumped, who were all prostitutes, were strangled. Some of them were stabbed. Some of them were shot. And his career as a killer probably began in the seventies prior to where they, they, they first became aware of him and continued on and never stopped until his arrest. So, um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with, with that more recent case, but it is one where Dennis Rader, every, everyone believes Dennis Rader stopped. Dennis Rader, who can't be trusted at all, um, this, you know, claims he stopped. But okay. there is, there is a possibility, maybe, that, that Dennis Rader even never stopped. And that there are murders that he committed in different fashion in different parts of the state of Kansas or, or in Missouri or where he was, where he was traveling that he doesn't want to admit to and that will never be tied to him. If you. Well, why would he not admit to them though? Death penalty. Hmm. I, most of the murders he's, uh, he's admitted to are, not, do not fall right. under the death penalty right. statute, exactly. whereas later murders would. Exactly. Yeah. I got you. Well, now we also, that being one part, but it could be either one of these two things in these, uh, out of an, a sea of infinite possibilities, but it could be whether he changed his MO or he could have moved to a place where there wasn't much coverage. He could have gone to a place where there was, uh, where no one would have thought to look and there could be files out there with, with similar MOs or there could be no files because no one took a, an interest and, and it was just kind of swept under the rug. I think that when it was in Whitechapel, it was the perfect storm where it cast a light on a place that needed to be cast. It needed to be lit up. But if he goes somewhere where no one cares, there is no threat of upheaval, or, or if there's poor news coverage or if there's sloppy uh, re- record handling, I, I, just, I just thought that rather than just either kill himself or be or be put away, he could have either changed his MO or moved somewhere else where or done both. Uh don't you think though that part of the thrill was to kill uh on the streets of London in the greatest metropolis metropolis of its day, you know, the um uh, capital of the British Empire, et cetera, et cetera. I, I feel like that is that could be part of it, but we would have to we would have to take the the character of the person that we don't know into uh, under true. a microscope. So, it, like that's that is true. a good that's a good idea. But we would have to there would have to be a profile brought up that was not universally accepted, but I think at least accepted by most. And then that could be positive if if he's just doing it for self gratification or for some other unknown reason, not for. Uh, and we, we know he's probably not doing it for the, the, the news coverage because he didn't write any of the, lipper, the, the Ripper letters. So we have to, I, that makes me think that he's motivated by his own wants and desires and not for, oh, I'm doing this in this specific place and getting away with it. I want to bring Mike Covell into the conversation before he goes to sleep on us uh, <laughs> up, up in the hole to tie to get uh, to tie him into this one because I was going to make the comment that you know as far as the Ripper committing other murders 
I, I'm pretty much convinced that every single murder of a woman or a girl, basically from 1870 to 1910, and in some cases later, has been gone over, and anywhere in the world, I might add, has been gone over with a fine-tooth comb to try to draw, to try to connect those murders to Jack the Ripper. Um, and Mike has done a lot of research into other murders, other murders of women, possibly committed by Ripper suspects, um, that, that don't, that have been dismissed as quote unquote Ripper attacks. Isn't that, isn't that right, Mike? Yeah. I mean, again, you know, Ripper suspects, people I don't think are Jack the Ripper, but people who have been associated with the case. And I mean, you know, one of these was Frederick Billy Demon. Um, he was uh, accused of a, a very little kid in 1891, um, just after he'd been released from Hull Prison. Um, now, at the time, the Hull police teamed up with the the sort of borough police that surrounded Hull, and they arrested a man for it by the name of John Renard, and it was only in 1892 when Damien was arrested in Australia and, and found to have committed the, you know, the, the Rainhill murders uh, and the Windsor murder, um, that the local press in Hull were discussing Damien in relation to that case. And as far as I'm aware, I, I've only found three sources, the Hull Press, um, the Beverly Press, which is a small village on the outskirts of Hull where De Demon spent very much of 1890. And there was one of the mention in the national press uh, involving Demon with this particular case. But that's it, that the trail sort of goes goes cold, really. You know, and she was basically killed in a very similar manner to Demon's wife, his first wife and his third wife and to three of the four children. Basically, she'd had a throat cut, she'd had stuff stolen from her, and her body had been... It tried to hide the body uh, under a hole stock. Uh, there was also circumstantial evidence with regards... When Damien was arrested, he was found with certain items of jewellery um, that were missing from this, this murder victim. You know, obviously, it's all circumstantial, but it never got anyone for the crime, and it, the, the modus operandi certainly fitted in with Demon. The time scale, the location was just five minutes walk from Hull Prison, uh, where Demon was released. You know, so that's quite interesting. But you know, things like that where you find these victims in close proximity to where these suspects have been, it's kind of like our Michael Gordon's work that is done. Where you know, he, he puts Chapman in in New York when there were murders in New York. He puts Chapman in London. You know, and uh, I'm not saying that it's right. I'm saying that it's quite interesting, especially when it comes to the, the modus operandi of that particular chosen suspect. It's weird when you look at the, these murder cases, you look at how the victims were, were killed, and certain aspects tie in certainly with Jack the Ripper, his alleged victims, um, but there are other aspects that don't fit in with it. You know, So it's interesting, um, but whether or not we'll ever see any definite evidence that you know, there were more than the, the, the canonical victims. Right. It is interesting how a couple, a couple things, like when, when, when a serial killer is actually apprehended, like a Ted Bundy or a uh, Gacy or a Grim Sleeper, they go, the police are immediately set on high alert to go through and find any other similar murders that could be attributed to the person they have already captured. Um, right. Now, at the time of the Ripper murders, of course, he was never captured, but Jack the Ripper's name was out there, so concurrently there would be murders uh, in other parts of England or in other parts, and uh, you know, as far away as Austin, Texas, where the contemporary press 
would, of course, as we all know, come out, is this another Ripper murder? Uh, they oh, would immediately so. tag that that killing, suggesting the possibility that it is of this unknown serial killer. Something similar is going on in Long Island right now um, with um, a murderer of prostitutes. And, and so as far as the Ripper changing his M.O., I mean, to me, it seems like, you know, all of these other... I mean, I'm trying to argue basically for a case of Jack not being responsible for other murders in different parts of the UK or in the United States or wherever, simply because it was examined then. It's been examined to death now by and over the years by ripperologists trying to find other victims and nothing is ever quite convincing. Um, maybe that is because we're fooled into the, believing that he stuck with his M.O., which is a good possibility. But th- I don't think there are... The, the likelihood of there being murder victims in, let's say, Berlin or in the 1890s or something like that, that we don't already know about who are victims of Jack the Ripper beca- and forgotten because of they, the police don't care about prostitutes or forgotten because paperwork has been destroyed or, or, or whatever. I'm kind of siding with that scenario being unlikely. Does anyone wish to comment on that? I, I kind of think that people have been drawing lines between dots since the Big Dipper, and a lot of the things don't match up, like a lot of you're trying to match this guy with this guy, and they've got pretty soon they've got photos of people and victims and string all over their house. But it doesn't mean to say that that isn't completely unplausible. I think it's very hard to say what someone wouldn't do until you actually have them in yeah. your hands. You, you, this idea that human behavior is predictable or that because of our modern perceptions of serial killers, we can make some sort of judgment ab- about even modern serial killers. Um, I just think that humans are much more surprising and less predictable. Yeah, than, I agree. Uh, and you can't just say, oh, it's unlikely. Nothing is unlikely unless it's like physically impossible, in my opinion, or improbable. Not You can say it's unlikely, but you can't really make a judgment about its plausibility or its probability. We do know of serial killers who travel great distances, truck drivers who kill people all throughout the United States along their truck route. So who's to say that even back then he couldn't have hopped on a boat and gone? How do you define likely? You don't know what's likely until you know who it was. And then you can say whether it was likely. Which is true. Um, but with the Ripper case, what I'm kind of saying is that if a murder made the press, the likelihood at the time, contemporary, they would have suggested it would have, the murder was committed by Jack the Ripper. Those murders have been examined by researchers over the years, and there's a lot of them, as we all know, um, that, uh, that have press reports, you know, suggesting that maybe this is a Jack the Ripper murder. You know, it was like their, their code word for the murder of any woman anywhere. So those have all been examined and for one reason or another dismissed, rightly or wrongly. Correct. Right, how uh, do you know that it was five and done? You know, like the famous one we all know about is Carrie Brown. You know, right. USA, uh, and, you know, those kinds of things. And everybody says, no, it's not possible. It wasn't Jack the Ripper. But I think it's our own predetermined prejudice that Jack the Ripper killed the canonical five and then stopped. 
you know, I, I don't necessarily believe Carrie Brown was a Ripper victim, but yeah, they were examined, but they're all dismissed. But how do we know that they should have been dismissed? We're making opinions, and that's all they really are. They're opinions. We yeah. can't say for sure one way or the other which way it was. Right. And it's a, and, and, and kind of like what Chris was talking about it uh, as far as, you know, the metropolis, you know, we, we're, we're not mentioning Tabram. We're not mentioning Mackenzie. We're not mentioning mm. Coles as potential victims of Jack the Ripper when a lot of pretty intelligent researchers will argue for the inclusion of some of these other non-canonical victims in his tally geographically. You know, focused in on, on geographically, but I assume you're right that it, you know, maybe it, it, maybe geography is kind of a narrow focus, but then you kind of get into suspect theorizing. Well, if he was a low class Polish Jew, or if he was a ship, uh, a seaman, um, like Trevor Marriott would argue, he might not have had the means to travel outside of London. But then you have people like Vanna. The guy who wrote the book on the South American killer list, um, Van, what was his name? Onslen. Van Van Onslen, yes. Um, Who is a world traveler, you know. That is far and away the most distinguished historian ever to have dipped a foot into the Ripper case. Right. Is a major scholar. And the reason he comes to this extraordinary position is actually one which is totally unlike the normal ripperologist's approach. He was investigating List because he found him being followed by police wherever he looked in South Africa uh, and the adjacent territories, which is his area of history. And so he wanted to do a history of him. And he suddenly finds that the man disappears for a year when he appears to have been in Whitechapel. And he wonders why. And then he realizes that year is the year of the Ripper. He can't place exactly where he was then, and he finds both him and his daughter apparently trying to cover up the fact that he was in Whitechapel at that time. That's what brought him there. It's totally different from the sort of ripperologist who says, I want to find Jack the Ripper. Uh, He came saying, well, can the Ripper people tell me, is there any reason for writing this man out? He's a pimp with a reputation for violence against prostitutes later in his life. Could he not have been Jack the Ripper? I think he wasn't. But of all the dotty cases that have been put up. That's the one for which I have to say, well, in terms of historical method, I have respect. This wasn't a piece of insane Hunt the Ripper. This was a piece of, for God's sake, what was Joseph List doing in the autumn of 1888? And you're right, Martin, because lots, so many people try to fit up a certain suspect for various reasons. But as you said, in this case, it's, it's completely the opposite, which, yep. which, as you said, you have to take it more seriously. I think so, especially given his record in the writing of other history. Right, because he, he, he doesn't have an angle for the Whitechapel murders. He's more interested no. in researching List. He's interested, actually, in why this man keeps cropping up. Right. It, he looks at the, uh, as it were, the Home Office or State uh, um, Attorney General, you know, the, 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 the serious cabinet-level people concerned with crime in South Africa, uh, German West South Africa, Mozambique, and then he finds in South America, in America, in Europe, this has been banned from every continent, uh, and he's of great interest as a serious criminal to people at the top. And with that behind him, he suddenly says, um, why the hell 
find exactly what he was doing just for one autumn of his life when the evidence I have is that he's in Whitechapel. And this seems to be covered. And that's when the Ripper murders happened. It's fascinating. I thought, um, I thought Mike Covell looked into his um, activities in Hull. Is that not right, Mike? Because that's right. as far as yeah, I no. remember, um, from the, if I, I recall the book, it's been a couple years since I read it. Um, there's an eight, he could place lists in Whitechapel at an earlier time than the Autumn of Terror, but the closest he was able to get to London uh, for a fact, in 1888, was in Hull. Was that not correct? <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. Um, he, apparently, he arrived in Hull with some of his friends, and while he was in Hull, he had quite a good record, but it was his friends who were up to no good. His best friend was married, and essentially what had happened was the, was the split up, and the wife had gone round to the husband and, and took her goods back, and the, the husband accused her of stealing. And it was a big criminal case, and I've, I've got the file here, and it's absolutely, you know, it's enormous. They discussed the legality of, is it legal or illegal to steal from someone that you're married to? That's why we know he was here, because he was mentioned in these files as a witness. They were sent to me some time ago by a, a gentleman from Hull University that was working on white slavery. And, you know, he brought that to my attention and said, basically, these guys were quite big in terms of white slavery in the part of Hull during the, the late 1800s. So. But that's fascinating. Is that putting List actually active as a pimp as early as 1888? I've not got the dates to hand, but I believe it was even earlier than that. It can't be, because he, he didn't come to England until the previous year. But I believe it's 1887. I've not got the files to hand, but... Yep. I mean, I, c I can get the dates to them. It's a, an absolutely enormous file. It was essentially sent to me quite a few years back, and what had happened was he'd sent it to the Hull University mailroom, and it yep. had got lost. And a year after he'd sent it, it turned up on my doorstep, and it was all falling apart, and there were footprints on it, and it, <laughs> I, I wondered what the hell it was, because, you know, I'd forgot all about this this file that was supposedly coming to me uh, and there were no names that were instantly recognisable because obviously it was more about his friend than it was about him uh, and sure enough as I was reading through there was quite a great deal of information in there about their their activities in Hull you know and what they'd got they'd got up to I'm just trying to find the I've got my files in a big locker um, oh. next to me so I'm just I'm just pouring over them at the minute but yeah if I find it before the show's over I'll I'll give you a shout. <laughs> Very good. We're talking about the man who also goes by the name of Silver. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think, yes, yes. Yeah, we should probably put that in who we're talking about for our non, The Fox and the Flies is the book, yeah. I believe. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, um, uh, David, do you have any any um, other questions you'd like to, uh, or any other points you'd like to make? Yeah, I had, uh, <clears throat> I had one I wanted to throw out there. Now, I've, I've heard you guys talk about uh, Ripper in the movies and documentaries and, and, but I've never, as of yet, heard you guys discuss anything about the Ripper, like the fictional side as, like, uh, in literature or anything outside of the movies. Is there, does anyone fall down on a, on a specific piece of Ripper fiction, like either what he's, uh, against Sherlock Holmes in the, in, in print or, or anything like that? Is there any fiction out there that isn't, uh, movies that anyone seems yeah, to, uh. He's, he's on the stage, whether I was at the Rexall uh, convention also in London. I spoke about, uh, what I believe is the first, uh, Jack the Ripper play that was, uh, produced in, uh, Brooklyn in January 1889. 
Yeah, Ripper fiction does go way back, and Ripper poetry, Ripper ballads were produced um, um, very shortly after the murders. Uh, more current Ripper fiction, I'm not particularly well-versed in. I know Mike Covell reads quite a bit of Ripper fiction, don't you, Mike? Yeah, I've just got a Kindle. Uh, um, Ripper fiction is so cheap ah. on Amazon. <laughs> not to say that there's, you know, there's some good titles, um, but a lot of it's, you know, y- you sort of read the first page and think, what am I reading? Uh, some of it's actually mm-hmm. labelled as fact, uh, and when you start reading it, you realise it's fiction. But I, I believe we had a show before on uh, Ripper Fiction, when we did a podcast some time ago, and we, we discussed Brian L. Porter, uh, Bill Perry, and quite a few other Ripper Fiction authors um, on the podcast. We're doing, we're doing plugs. I'm going to plug Jana Oliver and her, yep, um, Jana, yep. <laughs> her time series. So. I would plug uh, M.J. Trow. I love his Lestrade series. I think they're great fun. They're fiction. They don't pretend to be anything else. And The Ripper in Art is essentially Vedekin's Lulu and the Oldenburg uh, opera taken from it. It's nothing like The Real Ripper, but it's using this idea that the other people destructive femme fatale, when she becomes self-destructive, becomes it by attracting Jack the Ripper. Well, I, 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 this is going to point out uh, the the low browness of my because I'm not into I've not seen any of the operas or any of the uh, the the higher brow. But I was wondering, and uh, Mike, you might be uh, familiar with this, but a year after the uh, the centennial, DC Comics put out a uh, graphic novel with Batman uh-huh. versus Jack the Ripper. It was called uh, Gotham by Gaslight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are you are you at all familiar with that? I am, yeah. There's, there's been m- more recent one with Dracula versus Jack the Ripper, which is to be made into a, a film, I believe. Uh, the rights have been sold for a movie version. So, right, yeah. I was, um, <laughs> was traipsing through the comic book store yesterday. I thought, oh, this is kind of nerdy, but uh, they, I, I still have not been able to lay my hands on a copy of the Gotham by Gaslight, but uh, I did see Batman versus Dracula, and I didn't think that, that was quite in my alley yet. <laughs> So what's your book going to be about? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> did, did Jonathan spill the beans? I, I spilled the beans to Allie, but I think <laughs> she might be the only one who knows. Well, that's okay. Well, we all know now. <laughs> I have a crush on Allie secretly. <laughs> <laughs> we all do. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I only ask that because I'm, I'm currently doing research for a fictional account. Uh, this is by no way uh, something that anyone should be angry about because I know people don't like it when their suspect isn't named. But it's, it's eventually going to work out. It's, go- it's going to be Druid and there will be supernatural forces involved. Okay, so you just like blew the story for everybody who would have read it. <laughs> well, no, that, that, everyone everyone knows the of a suspect, and I can you can you can read a book on uh, the Druid as a suspect, or Robert Downey Stevenson as a suspect, or or yeah, but, or whoever. But you should tease us a little bit, David. You should have teased well, us a little bit no, with the, the fact previously the Druid... untoward information, discovered <laughs> diary, or something. <laughs> the, the fact that Druid is one of the Ripper suspects. I'm not tipping my hand. The the the, the mystery comes in the, in the other the other aspects of it. Mm. I've always said that if instead of writing serious history, I had written totally spurious history, pretended it was true, and claimed that the Ripper murders were cooked up 
jointly by Oscar Wilde and Rudyard Kipling when they met in America the year before the murders. <laughs> Wilde comes back to see them, they were carried out. I'd be a rich man if I'd published that rubbish now. Instead of <laughs> well, yeah, people, people love historical fiction, and I hope by the end of this show I will convince every one of you that Edgar Rice Burroughs committed these murders between the ages of 13 and 14. Before <laughs> you start swinging from trees. <laughs> yes. Bringing was, in the, right before, the gorilla theory, um, the escape gorilla theory. Right before Tarzan and uh, John Carter of Mars, this is what gave uh, him the... <laughs> right, now, isn't, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there a book, come, uh, maybe it's out already, I haven't been keeping too close of a tabs on Ripper literature, that goes into Bram Stoker's interest in Dr Jack the Ripper. Mike kind of made a light bulb go off in my head when he mentioned Dracula. Isn't uh, isn't there a new book out that more deeply explores the possible Ripper connection to the uh, the genesis of Dracula? There is, yes. Uh, Neil R. Story has released the Dracula Secrets, which is basically Jack the Ripper in the darkest sources of Bram Stoker. And it basically looks at the, the connection between Bram Stoker's writing and the Ripper case. Right. I need to pick that up because that's something that's interested me, you know, in the past and kind of gets into a, a little bit of a tumblety connection as well. Being the music Irving and the connection to the Beef State Club, of course. So. Anyway. <laughs> Well, you know how to kill a conversation, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Buzz <laughs> kill. Uh, uh, okay, so anything else um, we um, I, would like I, to discuss? I wanted to ask, yeah, I wanted to ask uh, Chris and Martin about the Drexel conference. Um, yeah, well, just because just because it sounded like a different conference, and and uh, yeah, I think um, it, that came to mind when we we're talking about graphic novels because there was very good. Coverage of that. So Very good. Yes. Very uh, good. And, and the other thing, of course, was this revelation by uh, profiler Richard Walter that um, he had this secret information about Druid being the murderer, and he was given that information by a top um, Scotland Yard man, whose name he wouldn't reveal. So that that was the other kind of bombshell that. Uh, um, uh, we think it's probably old information that he may have been misled about it somehow. But he it couldn't have been more un It was completely unconvincing. Yeah. I would say, wouldn't you, Chris? I, I would. Convincing. It, it revolved around a friendship between um, Druitt and um, Prince Albert oh, Victor. It, yeah. it, it's, um, but both of them were... Um, he said they were both members of the Apostles, and th there is such a lot of nonsense said about the Cambridge Apostles. The Cambridge Apostles is a philosophical papers society. It goes back to Tennyson and Arthur Hallam. Its greatest period was when Wittgenstein, um, John Maynard Keynes, Bertrand Russell were members of it. There is no way Druitt could possibly have been a member he simply wasn't bright enough and is memory <laughs> deceived me or wasn't Druitt at Oxford and not Cambridge? Yes he was, he was an Oxford man. So he could not conceivably have been a member of the Apostles 
uh, anybody who sold i mean th th this is the trouble um or what what's his name richard thingamy bob the profiler who, who who struck me as a an amazingly histrionic character richard I, yeah i have got secrets sort yeah. of oozing around the place i have got secrets i know things that you don't That's look right. The average IQ of a serial killer is 117. That happens to be exactly the level you have to have to be a member of the American Bar Association. So, and I said to him afterwards, did he actually think that uh, Otis Tool and Henry Lee Lucas would have been members of the Bar Association? <laughs> And, uh, he said, uh, yes, of course you can have the ability and not use it. He could not have impressed me less, frankly. Well, and, and also his knowledge of the case was kind of limited. Uh, miserable, miserable. <laughs> I mean, he, he thought that um, the, um, the, well, he, he openly said um, that uh, the killer um, was the type who played with his victims for hours. Yeah. It clearly wasn't the case with um, uh, the Ripper. Yes. It was much like Paul Begg's report of the Trevor Marriott lecture. How many errors can you actually pack into a short uh, period? Right. <laughs> well, he, he also said from the stage that McNaughton, to say McNaughton, the guy who wrote the McNaughton rule, yeah, that's right. Yes, he thought Norton was responsible for the McNaughton rules of madness. He confused uh, the chief constable of the Ripper period with the guy who, three generations earlier, tried to kill, uh, did kill Robert Peel's secretary uh, and thought that the Jesuits were in a conspiracy to murder him and gave us the rules on insanity. That His historical knowledge was absolutely abysmal. Uh, but I would say that the, one of the wonderful things about that conference was meeting Chris and meeting Hal Brown. Thank you. <laughs> that was a great pleasure. I do miss my the American conferences. I do think it's a shame that the American conferences seem to have fizzled out because uh, us on the <coughs> side of the pond can't often hoist our way all the way over to uh, England as often as we would like to. So, Well, I mean, I maybe Axel could be prevailed upon to do it again. I, I thought that was... a uh, a very successful conference, and um, to have a base like that to do it, uh, I think that would be wonderful. So maybe we could talk to Fred about the and uh, all the Morant's Cohen about the um, possibility and, of another one. And didn't you, Chris, suggest maybe uh, something in Baltimore? Or, um... Yeah, I, you know, I, I have been to a number of um, uh, events at. Westminster Hall, which is where Ed Grant Poe is buried, and every time I go there, uh, I think that, that would be, make for an excellent location. I, I'm thinking about it, but, you know, the, the problem is that putting on an event, as we used to do it, uh, getting a hotel and everything, you know, in the present economy, it's, it's difficult to do that, so I would rather just hire a hall, uh, as Adam did, at the King's Store. East End and not have to worry about all the hotel stuff. Just let uh, the uh, members who are coming, the um, convention goers, worry about the accommodations and, and most of the meals. And that way they could do it within their own price range and, and exactly. whatever. Right. Orlando's so lovely almost every time of year if you're thinking of putting 
Yeah, so is San Diego, by the way, and and you know, uh, I work, uh, I semi work in the hotel industry, so we might be able to uh, get comp comp rooms or at least discounts. So <laughs> sounds great, I and mean, I do have several people who I know are interested in attending something, and I've been in discussions with. So I'm pretty sure that we would have a nice um, turnout. All right. Well, um, you know, the more people you know talk about it, um, the more likely that it could occur at one point. I in say time. we just meet in Vegas for the drinking and forget uh, the you know lecturing. I can't <laughs> Vegas. I feel as Kipling said of Chicago. I have now seen it, and I desire nothing more than never to see it again. With <laughs> <laughs> all our money, on which uh, suspect is the most likely. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and Las Vegas has a pretty uh, big crime museum, I believe, now. And I think they're opening up another museum to get dedicated to the mafia. So. Street right, never Vegas been, are a so. crime museum in themselves. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, before we wrap it up, um, is there anything else? You know, this is a free-for-all. Free any topic is worth uh, discussing. So if there's anything else anyone w would like to throw out there before we wrap it up, Yeah, I, 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 just wanted, I wanted to mention, you know, some of the uh, Ripperologist uh, contents. Um, I was very um, impressed by the, um, the article uh, by the Ionsons on um, uh, Jacob Cohen. Uh, I'm amazed at the information that people are coming up on some of these lesser-known suspects and the fact that they made um, a, a familial link uh, between um, Levy, the, the, um, the witness, to Heddo's and the man, and Levy, the suspect, I thought was incredible, and um, all of the information that they had about um, uh, Jacob Levy's uh, mental state and so on, I thought was wonderful. So that, that sort of research is what we uh, look to try to publish. Okay. We certainly look forward to more important articles uh, coming out in future issues of Ripperologists. Does anyone else have anything going on? I know Mike is uh, still getting through your book that you've been working on for like the last four years, I think, Mike. Um, uh, <laughs> he'll be rivaling Tom Westcott pretty soon. He's <laughs> 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 Hurry it up there, Mike. I'm trying. <laughs> Might I plug something that has nothing to do with Jack the Ripper at all? Absolutely. Right? Uh, I run my own podcast that has nothing to, Jack the, has nothing to do with Jack the Ripper, but it, it's a lowbrow comedy show. It's fistfulpodcast.com. We're on iTunes, too. So if you're listening to, us, uh, listening to this on iTunes, you might as well listen to um, me without these guys, right? Yes, right. most definitely. And, um, and I'll put uh, the link to your show on the casebook on the podcast page so there will be Much a direct, there will be a direct direct link to your podcast on that on that on our show page so people look for that is any anyone else have anything before we call it a show i'd really like to plug something but unfortunately you know me yeah i don't, I don't have anything no product. <laughs> yeah i don't have anything to plug either um, so, um if if i could can i plug one more thing sure okay uh, just, just try to get as much uh, awareness about this as possible. But I, I did write a book already. It's on Amazon. You can get it for your Kindle. It's called Found Manuscript. It's uh, in, in the vein of uh, Lovecraftian horror, and uh, I think it's a pretty, pretty good book. So, 
is three dollars. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> s- uh, send me um, the uh, title of your book, um, so I so I can throw that in there as well. Will do. And my um, my ripper CD, uh, as it was done in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, is available from CD Baby. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I'll make a brief show announcement, and that is that, as you guys know, and all of our listeners are well aware, this podcast has been on hiatus. I've quit it probably at least a half a dozen times. But now the talking with Allie and doing this show and, and I was amazed at how many of you guys came out and, um, and wanted to participate in today's podcast. And I'm flattered and I really appreciate the, you know, the support that my guests have for the show. We're going to continue doing episodes of Rippercast. But not as often as they once were. Um, you know, it started out as an every weekend show and we knocked out about at least 40 of those right off the bat. And then it kind of got slowed down to every other week and then maybe once a month and then once every six months and then maybe once a year. But with Allie, all things considering, hopefully, time and availability, what we're going to plan on is a podcast maybe once every two months. So possibly about six times a year. Um, that way, it doesn't prey too much on my regular guests' time. You know, I know that doing a podcast every weekend for all of us, me included, is just most of the times an impossibility. So, but I do want to continue these shows and we're going to look to put out one or two, you know, every few months. So they won't be as reoccurring as they once were, but again, they won't go away either. So, um, just to let you guys know that and I'll be certainly, uh, you know, ex- expecting an email from me asking for, for your all's availability here down the road for, for more episodes of the Rippercast. With all that being said, I want to thank everyone for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. And it was a fascinating conversation as always. So I hope our listeners enjoyed it. And I hope you all enjoyed talking to one another as well. And thank you, David, for being our special guest today. Oh, I enjoyed it immensely. All right. And we'll uh, talk to you guys next time. And that was Rippercast, episode 51, The Blind Man's Bluff. Again, I want to thank David Lindblad, Martin Fido, Chris George, Mike Covell, Robert McLaughlin, and Allie Ryder for being on the show today. And I want to doubly thank David Lindblad for being the producer and editor of this episode of Rippercast. We are a podcast available at www.casebook.org and also as a free subscription on the iTunes Music Store. And while you're at the iTunes Music Store, please visit A Fistful of Podcasts, which is David's podcast, and subscribe to that one as well. We will be recording another show here in the next month or two, but I hope you enjoyed this one, and we'll see you next time. Jonathan, it's it's Locke McLaughlin. McLaughlin.